Howdy folks, this is the old horror hound Ronald Kelly inviting you to head on over and visit my new online bookstore, RK Horror. There you'll find everything that's southern fried and horrified. Books like Fear, Undertaker's Moon, Blood Kin, and The Saga of Dead Eye. Story collections like The Essential Six Stuff, After the Burn, The Halloween Store, and Season's Creepings as well as artwork and apparel. And remember, every book you buy comes with a personalized inscription and hand-drawn RK artwork on the title page, free of charge. So if you have a hankering for some spine-tingling horror south of the Mason-Dixon line, just go to rkhorror.bigcartel.com. Thank you, and many happy nightmares, y'all. Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the indigenous literary horror uh, novel White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her, uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghost began to haunt Carrie and a monster invades her dreams and Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver Colorado and it's also just you know my love of heavy metal and horror which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs people loved and it's also a love song to old Denver Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. This is Bram Stoker and Elgin Award-nominated author Jessica McHugh. And I'm hoping you'll join me May 26th through the 28th in Hunt Valley, Maryland, where I'll be a guest of honor and the featured poet at Horror on Main. This convention is like a love letter to the horror community with writers, artists, actors, directors, pretty much anything you could want if you love the horror genre as much as I do. So come on down to Hunt Valley Memorial Day weekend and I'll see you at Horror on Main. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking to a guest that both Brennan and I have been very excited to have on for quite a while now. His name is Victor Laval. Say hello, Victor. Hello, everybody. And uh, he is the author of uh, Lone Women. He um, also probably most notably uh, for The Changeling. Um, but before we get into that, what got you into horror? Uh, chaotic childhood, <laughs> uh, I would say is the probably the true answer. And, uh, but in, in a sincere way, I mean that like, uh, growing up in a somewhat chaotic household, um, there's a fair bit of mental illness in the family. I guess we're just, we're just starting deep, deep in the ocean, in the, uh, in the deep end of the personal pool. But, um, uh, uh, so for me, uh, in a chaotic household, I have to say like one of the things that drew me to horror i know i can be more specific but really what drew me in was 
Um, like when I started to read horror, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Shirley Jackson, uh, Lovecraft, Poe. Um, one of the things that was an essential truth about them all was just like one day you're in your house and it's a normal house. And then just the next day, if you're unlucky, you open the door and there's a werewolf in the closet. Right. And uh, that actually spoke really deeply to the reality I felt I was living in where you couldn't always rely on which version of a person you were going to get day to day. And so what drew me to horror really was uh, that it was the only form of literature that I thought as a kid told me the truth about the world. And also Stephen King's uh, skeleton crew, right? If I'm being more specific. (laughs) (laughs) Brandon, I want you to reply first, please. I don't know if it ties into that answer exactly, but it it made me think of um, a discussion we've had on here before with the idea of, and this is more modern, you know, being even stuffed back into like the late 50s and 60s versus older horror of uh, bringing the horror kind of to your doorstep. And I mean, one of the examples I think of is uh, Rosemary's Baby, um, where... Mm -hmm. Now this isn't, you know, uh, a castle that kind of you take a trip to far out in, you know, Transylvania. Uh, this is it showing up on your doorstep. And I wonder if that's a that that's kind of a consideration as far as, you know, the werewolf in your closet type thing is that, you know, these are real emotions and real truths, but they're also, you know, being brought to a familiar environment versus something like science fiction versus something like fantasy. Right. Um, is, is that, you know, something that you, an idea you've kind of played around with? Well, that, I mean, I think that that idea rings true. And it's funny that you bring up Rosemary's Baby because certainly number one, it's a, certainly a film that I love very much. Uh, not least because it was one of the few growing up that was set in New York City. You know, so much horror is uh, either someplace rural, someplace suburban. Uh, more recently, I guess, like early 2000s, someplace in like Eastern Europe. Uh, but um, I loved Rosemary's Baby because it was so clearly, genuinely New York, which is where I grew up. Um, but I also like that, like... Uh, one of the things that I think makes Rosemary's Baby such a lasting sort of story and film and all and book um, is that like, it seems like the horror is that she's moved into a building with a coven, right? A satanic cult inside it. But in reality, I think the real horror of that movie is that Rosemary married the wrong man. Right. And that like, that's really what that thing is, is about is like a, um, it's not that you move somewhere and you find the horror, it's that you brought the horror in with you. Uh, and like that moment in the film when she's been drugged and she's been raped by the devil, but then she like looks up and she sees the husband and he kind of just has this moment of like looking away and then going on and you realize, oh, he brought, like he gave her to them. Uh, is so chilling, you know? Um, but I think it is that idea that it's it's the it's that horror that is that you have brought with you, but it is also a very modern, like, it's not, like you say, it's not the old Gothic sort of horror trapped somewhere in the, in the moors or something like that. It's just in your apartment building and you married it. And like you said, it's, uh, I always like to think of horror as it's a genre of, of like trust is such a big theme 
um, pretty much throughout. I mean, whether it's psychological, can I trust the narrator or can I trust myself? Mm -hmm. Um, And what a great example in Rosemary's Baby of can I trust the person that I live with? Um, And I, I think there's just so much to explore there, which, you know, I know we're, I definitely want to talk about the changeling and who that's, that's certainly implicit in there. Yes. Um, (laughs) uh, But before we do that, Patrick, unless you have somewhere you want to go, I kind of want to take us to lone women. Yeah. uh, Real quick. Um, I always forget the exact name of it. Um, Medicine has really long names, but um, Chuck Palahniuk was, we had him on, Thalidomide. Yeah, we had him on for me and Brennan did a side podcast. It, it lasted only for like six or seven episodes, but um, <clears throat> the one we did with Chuck focused on Rosemary's baby, okay. and he, and he had an interesting theory. Um, Brennan, you're a lot smarter with an, uh, <laughs> explaining this. Can you can you go over? Because I I would like to hear. Actually, I didn't know Victor was a big fan of Rosemary's baby, honestly. So I'd like to hear his thoughts on on what Chuck said because I've I've only heard this from from Chuck and it was, it blew my mind. All right. You're putting me on the spot. So I'm probably going to butcher it, but it had something to do with um, the uh, birth defects caused from thalidomide and how uh, at the time you couldn't write a horror book that specifically that overtly focused on that. Uh So Chuck kind of speculated that maybe uh, there were aspects of Rosemary's baby that, were metaphors for that is is that what you're referring to pat yeah sorry i had myself muted yeah it was and um his his idea was putting the baby uh giving rosemary a devil baby so uh, i don't know if you have anything to say that's fascinating i mean certainly like the old to to this is not my way of trying to get back to get to the changeling but um one of the things that is cer- certainly like a a, a, a a common theme generation to generation and going back farther and farther, right? Is the question of like, uh, like what Rosemary says in there, like, what did you do to my baby? What happened to my baby, right? And this question, uh, um, so like the changeling myths, uh, certainly I think uh, with time and distance are on some level about wrestling with questions of, Babies that are born, quote unquote, seemingly one way, healthy, normal, whatever these words mean, and who then change, right? And that I think we understand now that like those old changeling myths were in part a way to talk about things like autism Mm. in children, right? Uh, Why does my child suddenly not speak anymore? Or why is it, um, why doesn't it look at us directly, like all our other children do. Why doesn't it do all those things, right? And then certainly, as I'm saying in my family, as a way to think about things like mental illness, like why does this person change? And so the idea that uh, Rosemary's Baby, one of the things that might be filtered in there is yet another way that children were at risk uh, would not be surprising to me and would make me feel like it had it entered a... Um, an older conversation, a longer conversation about this question of like, I'm, I'm worried for my child. What's going to happen to my child. Right. And then as time goes by, hopefully we change the discussion, you know, like if the old changing myths were about this, we're on some level sometimes about questions of autism or other kind of spectrum 
issues in children that perhaps a more modern take might not pose that as a horror, but might pose it as something, uh, an opportunity, might pose it as something magical or something beautiful, right? And that that's what time will also allow. So uh, uh, that idea from Chuck uh, seems super interesting to me. I'd never thought of it, but I, because maybe because I'm I'm so focused on the bad husband and like the gaslighting husband side of things. He's such I a just dick. Didn't think of the other. He's so awful. <laughs> I'm gonna punch him. I, I don't fight, but I just smack him in the face, man. But you know, I have to say, like, uh, as time goes by, and in whatever little ways that I'm getting any chance to uh, spend time in, like the Hollywood system, the TV system, uh, I'm. I feel greater uh, respect for Casabetti's in the movie for being willing to be so awful. Cause I'm seeing like here and there, I'll, I'll hear stories about the ways that actors protect their image, right? Like um, I don't want to seem like the bad guy. I don't want to seem like the gaslighter, right? Even though I signed up for that job, I'm going to find a way. No, no, no. I want to be sympathetic. I want the, and to his credit, He's just a dick. Yeah. Right? Book in movie. <laughs> yes. Who just sacrifices his wife for fame. And I really love the Cassavetes was just like, now nah, let's do it. You know. Lean in. <laughs> Lean into it. Yes. It's more memorable that way. <laughs> That's a great response. Yeah. See, I, I knew that you would say something I did not expect. Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, Brennan, so let's talk about lone women and then maybe lean into the changeling. Sounds good. All right. So, Victor, um, we are notoriously bad at giving synopsises for other people's books. You know, Patrick always spoils the hell out of them and whatnot. So <laughs> we're, we're going to put this on. You. Give us uh, <laughs> give us a pitch for Lone Women. <laughs> sure. So Lone Women is a novel uh, set in uh, new in uh, the United States in 1915. And it's about a woman in Adelaide Henry, a black woman farmer from a family of farmers who flees her family farm in California and runs off to the the most barren part of uh, Montana where she um, to set up a homestead and she brings nothing with her but a large mysterious trunk like that would be the and hilarity ensues and hilarity ensues yeah that's yeah. that's the exact tone I got from it um <laughs> I thought it was funny actually, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm curious because it's you could absolutely because of the time period because of the location you could pitch this as a horror western and I'm wondering mm. if that was something intentional you know a lot a lot of your um, books take place in New York City some For some sure. place that you are very familiar with so what what prompted you to write something in Montana? Well, uh, so two things first I uh, I really did feel like uh, the Changeling was like my big love letter to New York and to everything New York that I could sort of pour into one book. And obviously I'd had books before that were set there and I really was feeling pretty sick of New York. You know, I just wanted something a little different. Um, and at that same time, um, I'd picked up this book called uh, Montana Women Homesteaders, A Field of One's Own. And I just picked it up at the, uh, I did a reading at the University of Montana. I went to their bookstore and I got I went to the local history section and just by chance of all the books there decided to pick up that one and it was about lone women homesteaders and they were called lone women because 
They didn't come with a spouse or a family member or anything. It was just them coming out to these really barren landscapes to homestead at the start of the 20th century. Uh, and I'd known, I knew nothing about these women. I didn't know they existed at all. Even more than that, I didn't know that there were Black women homesteaders. I didn't know more broadly from reading about the time period. I didn't know there were Chinese people and Japanese people in Montana at this time. I didn't know there were Mexican folks. Of, and I didn't have any real understanding of the indigenous populations, sort of uh, their history there, their like uh, the the sort of uh, the harm they 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 lived under to be sent to the reservation system, and then their history, even their relationship with the indigenous people right across the border up in Canada. Like all of this stuff was new and interesting to me. And then the thing that really made me feel like it was the beginning of a story was that I asked, as I was reading this, I asked some of the folks who were in Montana at the university, folks who had been born and raised in Montana for generations and folks who had come there to teach. And I said, do you know, have you ever heard of the, any of these women or what they did? And to a person, they all were like, I didn't even know that happened. I didn't even know those women existed. And I felt like, okay, it's not just me, some kid from New York who doesn't know anything, right? This is just really a thing that a lot of people don't know. And then I started thinking like, well, maybe I could tell a story about them, you know? And then that, and, and then I just couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't stop reading about them. And then I kind of expanded from there and started reading about black Americans in the West and about homesteading women in particular and their diaries and things like that. And the more I read, the more I was just like, this is endlessly fascinating stuff. Uh, I got to give it a try. The worst that happens is, you know, people from Montana laugh at me. Uh, but the best that happens is maybe I make it work. I think. Um, and it's so, it's so interesting. I, you know, I almost, I, I had a, I, I kind of suspected that might've been kind of the jumping off point because it is such an interesting point in history with, yeah. you know, the, with the history of how um, the, this country has treated women and people of color. And the idea that I believe that act was uh, enacted in like the 1860s, that, yeah. um, that, that, that a woman had the ability to kind of parse out their own or their own piece of land. Um, it, it's, it, it's intriguing just by its kind of almost, um, place in history you would you yes. you wouldn't you wouldn't expect it you know whether you're from massachusetts or new york city or apparently right. montana as well so how deep i mean you told us kind of the start of it how deep did the research go to write uh, a book that happened in that you know that time period well as i say i read uh so the great thing about that first book the uh, uh montana women homesteaders book is uh the 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 woman who who compiled it, uh, Dr. Sarah Carter, uh, had like in the back, she was like, if you're still interested in this, read these books. And hmm. so I just went and picked up, I just went and started digging into those books. I, I feel like I have, uh, can I grab a couple off my shelf and I'll sure. uh, share yeah. the titles? Yeah. So most of these are library books. These are the ones I still have. Uh, Letters of a Woman Homesteader by Eleanor Pruitt Stewart was really pretty great. Um, and some of these are library books. African-Americans, 
on the Western frontier. Oops, we'll go up there. Uh, Vigilante woman, really, really wonderful. Uh, what's this one? Oh no, that's a Richard Wright book. Uh, the Montana frontier and African-American women confront the West 1600 to 2000. Uh, and so those are just the ones I have here, but they started to sort of paint this broader picture uh, of the West and specifically of non-white people in the West, non-white and, and uh, white women in the West that had not been, I, you know, it's just that thing of like the, I think the power of popular entertainment and what you see in the present, those two things I think regularly can make a person simplify what the, what, the past was actually like, right? Like my picture of Montana now is not as diverse and I don't think it is as diverse as it was in 1915. And then even that statement is funny because I think to most people you would say, whatever diversity is or isn't there now, it's gotta be better than it was in 1915. And you're like, no, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but that that's just, and that's not about, uh, like the point there is not to say like, to even to uh, to sort of talk bad about Montana now, so much as it is to say these ebbs and flows of history and the ebbs and flows of people across this uh, country, across the world, right? Like it's always so surprising who ends up where. Mm. And then with 50 years time, 100 years time, it's, it's, it's so easy to sort of flatten those stories out. And that was so another big part of the impetus for the story was just to say, there's literally only one thing in this book that I have made up, and I think it's it's fairly obvious what the one thing is, uh, if you read the, if you read the book, um, last name, <laughs> and the, yes, and then like literally everything else in the book, I, I I wanted to be able to say that I I could if someone asked I could source, I could source that detail. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a, are you I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm going to do it and I'll cut it. If you are um, not cool with this, but Omakatsu, are you a fan of her books? I know Alma I've read, which is the one, the, the Titanic one. I really loved. Uh, oh, the deep, the deep. I really enjoyed that one immensely. She does. Cause she's a, um, you know, her background for those that don't know her background and, is in, uh, uh um, Analysis, uh, analysis. I can't talk. Um, and she's a Japanese American woman, so she has a really interesting perspective um, yes. on on uh, what she writes, and she writes history uh, with horror spin mm -hmm. really well, and um, kind of got some, um, what is it, vibes from from that with this, and also I, I got a uh, wrong one. I got true grit there for a reason because. <laughs> That's funny. Just like it parallels with Lone Woman in the sense where like protagonist is a, a woman and they, mm -hmm. you know, they're badasses and, and they're not discussed much. And as you said, popular, uh, what's popular in the West, um, f Western fictions. Um, yeah, but and, she's great. And uh, um, she's got a, an, her, she's got a more recent book, I think, about about being an analyst, essentially, right? For the CIA, I think it is. Yeah. 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 Um, Red, oh, Red um, Widow. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah. She's a wonderful writer. And I think another person who I trust, I trust when that, when she tells me like, this is what's 
this is this is what's happening. This is what happened. These are who's involved. I trust it like uh, implicitly. Absolutely. Sorry, I thought Brennan was going to go. I would. I, I no. I'll go. I'm go. I. Oh my gosh! I just tripped over my tongue like three times in a row. All right, I will go. Um, so. I, I, I wanted to go back to something you said a minute ago about, you know, comparing the way that uh, people were treated in 1915 in that area versus now and just kind of automatically thinking we must have made progress. Um, I have a, I wrote a story and I have uh, the bad habit of writing historical stories and writing first and then researching later, which <laughs> I should probably get out of. But <laughs> here we are. Um, and I wrote a story about um, uh a couple of, of gay men who in the late 1800s, you know, get out of this Puritan New England town and go west. And they kind of build a cabin in the mountains because they're afraid of being judged, you know, even out there. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote the story and then I found out that it was relatively i don't know if i would say accepting but maybe more accepting of that lifestyle than people would expect um and i wonder if that was something you read about because you uh forgive me if, if you consider this a spoiler we can cut it but you mm. do include queer characters in your in your oh, no definitely yeah yeah so i wonder what you kind of found out in regards to that treatment well what i will say is that uh one of the undercurrents of the particularly like the stuff that focused on the homesteading women and their diaries and all the rest uh was um the potential value in reading between the lines in their journals and in the history of those moments right so uh, there were a decent number of these lone women who went out on their own but then they all they it also turned out that they that their plot that they had homesteaded was right next door to their very dear friend mrs so-and-so right and they they were so close it was as if the entire 700 acres was both of theirs and you kind of go uh-huh okay i think i get it you know what i mean and so it was uh, I think uh, one of the undercurrents of the, of all the writing about the lone women there is that there were probably a number of reasons why they went where they went. And that one of them was that perhaps there they could have the freedom to live more truthfully in, in, in their experience, you know, and in their love and in their desires and all the rest. Uh, so the one thing that you're, at least I, I in, in another things I read, no one was going to be, out in their journals or anything like that right like it just they would it just wouldn't be a thing you would even put down uh i think for fear that anyone might read it you know or find out or whatever or mm. whatever it might be but that um i think there was a clear undercurrent that uh that a good number some number of those lone women were, were couples you know who were living their time out there and they were um I have a character early on say something that I'd read in passing in a couple of the books. Uh, the idea that um, whatever one might think of people out here in the middle of winter, when you're going to freeze to death, if you don't get some wood, you're going to be nice to those neighbors nearby, even if secretly you hold a million judgments about them because you are going to need that wood or you are going to die 
Mm. And then they are going to return the favor because next winter they're going to need the wood, right? And that there was a degree of um, uh, dependence on each other that mm. also uh, facilitated, um, a, you know, uh, maybe a, a lack of overt judgment of people in their lifestyles. Not to mention there were lots of people who were fleeing to the to those territories, you know, for the more Deadwood style to escape uh, bad acts that they'd done in the past, to escape debts that they'd incurred. So there were lots of people who'd come there, and everyone, and a lot of them agreeing, um, you don't ask questions, I won't ask questions, and we'll all say hello at the saloon, like <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah, I was, it was definitely in there. Yeah, so was, that was definitely something I was hoping to uh, sort of uh, include and to make it. And to show the ways that it was obvious to, to everybody, but no one would speak of it. And then, but then when behind closed doors, they uh, uh, the one couple in particular, uh, Bertie and Fiona, would get to show their love. So we would say, okay, this, uh, away from others, they are a couple. And they have sex, you know. Mm. And are so when I mentioned earlier that why why we don't do why Patrick and I don't do the synopsis, um, you know, you left it off at at steamer trunk and then you you know just cut it off there. And I'm glad you did because you know if if it were on me, I might have given a little more. So what I will say, uh, and I understand why you didn't, but what I will say is if what if everything we just mentioned doesn't you know convince people to buy the book, you have to find out what's in the steamer trunk. I mean that's I mean and if nothing else. Uh, it takes a little while, but if nothing else, uh, I guess you could say there is definitely something in the steamer trunk, and it's not closed. <laughs> it's not closed. Um, so so we, we had a few questions on Twitter. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we're going to sprinkle in a few. Uh, Cynthia Gomez, actually, uh, we already kind of covered this. She wanted to know what it was like doing the research for that story. So I'm going to go down to Anthony Goodell. And Anthony, I apologize if I said your last name wrong, but... Uh, he says at the back of The Devil in Silver that you had a very specific fuck you to a mental <laughs> hospital in the acknowledgments. And yes. he he wants to know if you can <laughs> share a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, I was say so I mentioned earlier that I had, um, uh, we have a fair number of family members who with mental illness. Uh, and uh, I think there's enough time and distance, I, without being too explicit, I will say that uh, a very dear family member was treated very poorly uh, in one particular place. I don't even want to say the name of the place. It's in the back of the book, but yeah, don't, um, don't, yeah. Uh, and so, and I mean, being in the in a in psychiatric units in New York, if not if not everywhere, is is never. Uh, um, a cakewalk kind of thing, uh, especially like public, public universe. I mean, public uh, funded like Medicaid psychiatric places, uh, right? Um, uh, none of them is uh, is uh, is um, is fun. But even with that scale, this one particular hospital was so shitty to a family member of mine. Um, and the worst part was, and kind of the impetus for that book, part of the impetus for that book was. And there was nothing we could do about it. Like the only thing we could do about it was to get that family member out. 
and that took even a long time. That's tough. Uh, yeah, and so that was part of the, uh, like, even one of the things that was uh, funny to me, but in that way that, you know, when you write a thing and you, if you do know you're basing it on some true thing, uh, one of the things that was very funny to me when that book came out was like, it doesn't, it's not realistic that a person would be held this long against their will because New York no longer does this. They, they send them out into the street. There's a homeless issue, but they don't just like lock people away. This is a fairy tale or whatever. And, you know, it's one of those things where you say like, well, I just didn't convince that person, but I know how long it took us to get our family member out, you know? So that's why it was a fuck you to that hospital uh, and remains, uh, remains one. Yeah. I, I think that's extremely fair. It's, it's one of those, uh, you know, healthcare, mental health care teaching and i'm sure if i thought long and hard about it i could lump in a few other professions they're professions of humanity and if your heart's not in it get the fuck out you know um yeah yeah, i think we could probably yeah but even you know in a way like so the the, one of the things i mean obviously this is a separate book uh, of mine called the the devil and silver um but um one of the things that i did know i did understand i do understand about those systems at least certainly the hospital system was that it wasn't like you know um in the book even i make a point of sort of uh uh not loving uh one floor with a cuckoo's nest uh in part because the sort of battle there between the the patients and the staff to me uh is just not fair to the staff um because the staff by and large are trapped there too. Mm. Uh, Like um, when we went into, so like one of the issues for that family member was, uh, so if you, if you act out, they are allowed to put you in restraints, right? Like uh, so that you don't harm anyone else and you don't harm yourself, but there are supposed to be limits. I think it's, it's either two hours or maybe it's four hours. Um, But uh, when we would visit my family members, just trying to keep this somewhat vague to, uh respect the family members privacy but we would visit so we visit say like the, on a first day on a monday and they're in restraints the family the the patient is in restraints on their in their bed and we say like well we do know this person can sometimes get a little volatile we hate to see it but okay we understand until they calm down but then we come back the next day and they're in restraints and then they say they got volatile again and we say, oh, maybe, okay. And we come back Wednesday and they're in restraints. And then when the staff leaves, uh, we can whisper and just say like, you know, when do they take you out? And the answer from our family member was they don't, you know? Uh, and then, so my so my family, we're welling with rage. Get these off, get these, this, this, and this. And then the person who comes in though, who's going to take the brunt of it is an orderly or a like low end RN who's making 15 bucks an hour, maybe less to handle this. And there would be moments where I would realize, Oh, you're, you're no free. You're slightly freer because you're not in restraints, but you are trapped in this system as well. And it was like, so that at the heart of that book, the idea really is like this, the, the the system is the devil. It's not these people. It's certainly not the patients, but it's also not the staff by and large. You know what I mean? It's this thing that traps all of them and then also family members and all the rest. Um, 
And uh, and so that's why when I said that line in the book, I didn't say it was a fuck you to the staff or even the doctors. I said it was that hospital because the hospital was who put all this red tape ahead of us. And later on, we, you know, found out like, oh, you know, Medicaid pays for bet for a bed for this long. So you're not going to get your, you're not going to get your family member out until they've build it essentially until they build the, build the entirety of what Medicaid would pay. And then amazingly, when they reached the, basically the billing limit, you know, we think they're ready to go. And we would just be like, uh-huh, I see. Okay. This is a system that's a, that's evil. This is not just that person. So that's a long winded way to say, it, but like, that's, you know, um, part of what was on my mind with that one. And, you know, with, with that one in particular, and of course, you know, that I, I guess I think of it in terms of the healthcare system, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I have family members who have health issues and we deal with the, and I, I, I always find myself saying the system is broken, but I actually think that, I think that your point right there, that the system is evil is probably more accurate because yeah. it is, there is an intentionality to it. Well, and it's, uh, I would also add in there, like there's uh, even in the book, I have a character say it. Um, It's the reason they don't, because somebody says like, this system is broken, someone needs to fix it. And then at a certain point, one of the characters says, no one's fixing it because it's not broken. This is the way it's supposed to run. Uh, And the people who, the people who benefit from these systems, they're never in these hospitals, right? Like, the, the 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 board members who run the hospital that my family member was in they ain't, they they're not they're not staying there even if they if they if they have a family member with a psychiatric issue i promise you they're going to a private institution uh you know what's the money they made from all the people who are in the public institution yeah. um, so yeah so we were super grim but uh <laughs> hey that was a grim road <laughs> <laughs> But it is horror, exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you take it away, Pat? Well, I told Brennan today we were talking about this. um, I won't get into details, but we were talking, we were literally talking about the broken system. And um, I mean, I I agree, it's more evil now. But uh, I basically said, isn't that why we write horror? Yeah. Um, Because I can't imagine any of us are guys that are going to just start swinging. Uh, but like, if we didn't write books, why don't we just explode? Peter, Peter Straub said this to, before that Steve King told him if he couldn't write, he would be on top of a, basically a, he said an underpass with a, with a, um, sniper rifle and Apt pupil, he'd be knocking it out. <laughs> I mean, it came from somewhere, right? That story, I mean, yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about the changeling, and I'm not being funny when I ask this, but did you cry at any parts when you were writing that book? Because, um, like I got a three year old son, and Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about him, uh, when he was a little guy, and um, I'm just curious what you, uh, I want to tell Victor. I haven't said this publicly yet. I have another kid on the way, and and it's a it's an ultra big deal. Thanks, man. It's an yeah. ultra big deal because my wife had a miscarriage last year, and okay. I can't help but think about when I read about stuff like this. Like, 
I mean, we're out of the, we got the clear from the doctor that statistic like percentage wise, she's gonna she's got the same chances as anyone else. Like okay. she's she, but I bring it up because the changeling is about you know your your kid and is it your kid and it's an infinite. It, I'm just telling you because I'm I'm also very excited and I felt like reading that 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 was you especially here because I did the audio version and it's I, oh yeah I, it's because I'm reading it yeah yeah I thought you did a great job so thank you yeah and and as a reader you connect with certain books and um I was just like this is a guy like I'm cut from the same cloth as this guy I'm a new father and I know Brennan is too in the sense of like all the all the emotion, love. Like I didn't have a bad. I don't have a bad dad. He's great, mm-hmm. but um, you know, we have different approaches to fatherhood. Not sure. saying his was wrong or, or mine's more right or whatever, but um, I felt a connection with you there. And uh, yeah, that's man. I thought I had a really direct question, but <laughs> I, I kind of said to talk it through. Yeah, just had to share it. I, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, and it's uh. The first thing I read by you, this is the opposite, so that's why I'm not really good at this. The opposite is uh, my left hand for the right. Okay, so I'm just going to grab the book. <laughs> so the very first time I read something by you was um, 2019 yeah. Jonathan Mayberry. I know we're, we're going to go back to the changeling. No, please, whatever. This is a conversation. Yeah. This is uh, issue number 360. Oh, it's not on the camera. 363. And uh, you had the first the very first story in it and for those looking at it this is uh, a design from a 1930s issue um it's a really great magazine i i yeah. learned of some new people in there you got mayberry Merrill, uh josh josh mallerman uh lisa morton stephanie m whitevich and there's yeah. a lot of other great stories in there but i read it cover to cover and I thought you did a great job. Uh, that's nice. another reason why, yeah, why I had Cthulhu a little stuff that did yeah. it again. Because <laughs> of that, and then after this, I read the uh, Ballad of Black Tom, which just blew me away. Because I read all, every short story I could find of Lovecraft I've read, and like, I like his stories. I'm a fan of his. Um, mm-hmm. I mean... Me too. I, I'm a white guy, so I gotta say, I'm very aware of him and his views. Like, I don't agree with those Mm. um I, i'm not being flippant but i feel like that's kind of important to po- point out these days um i like his stories though and what you did with red hook story it just man i <laughs> i wonder if lovecraft was around and had enough experience just because it's fun to think about the only other place outside of providence for those that aren't aware that he lived was in new york and just like if time wasn't chronologically a thing if you guys had met because yeah. he met authors up there that's and true he, and he read your work because he he also enjoyed and i'm not trying to teach you anything it's for those that may not know much about lovecraft he he was really okay with people playing in his playground yes um i really think someone like you would have changed his views really quick i don't think it's and i'm not kissing your ass but it's really hard to argue that you're not a good writer and compelling so there's really no question there, man. I'm blubbering because I really like your work. So, Brennan, take us away. Well, let me say thank you before we do another <laughs> switch. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, but if I could, you know, if I could uh, just jump back to something you brought up earlier about the changeling and yeah. about uh, fatherhood and all Oh, I wanted to ask you about fatherhood. That's it. Yeah. I well, did have a question. Know, I will say, like, uh, um, um, I didn't really 
I wouldn't say I cried, except maybe like when I finally uh, found the right ending. Um, that made me, or cry with relief, maybe. Um, but uh, that book, like I, so I wrote it when our our older son was probably, I think our kids are, we have two, they're 18 months apart. Um, so our older son was probably one and a half and our younger son was just born. Um, and so I wanted to write about like just that time, like right then. Um, and because I knew, you know, I always hear this, you know, people would say like when, as soon as the kids were born, they'd say like, in 20 years, you won't even remember the hard parts. All you'll do is remember how much you love them. You'll miss them, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, but I was like, but I want to remember the hard parts because that's the thing that I feel like you don't get to see that much because people treat it like, you know, it's like, a, um, is it too shameful to admit to the things that are hard? Is it, you're very fearful you'll hurt your child if they discover that it was hard? I don't know what the reason is, but yeah. I felt like I want to confirm to other people not like why my book was the first one to do it at all. Certainly, uh, Shirley Jackson had a, a nonfiction book about raising her kids called Raising the Barbarians. Uh, so she was, so it's an old topic, right? But I felt like um, maybe less so from the dad's perspective. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about that. And what I channeled into it, what I poured into it was, I don't know if you all experienced this, but when they were little, especially, I... I imagine I ran through every single way they could be hurt or die, like constantly. Cause and where we live in New York, so the specifics of it would be, <clears throat> oh, I don't teach them to stop at the edge of the curb and they step out on the curb. And where we were living in Washington Heights, the drivers are really reckless. They go through intersections like nothing, whatever, like they just and just I was just seeing the kid just hit by a car. And then I see a kid, I see one of them. Uh, we're on the subway platform and they're leaning forward to see the train come and they just fall. And all this stuff was just like roiling inside me every day because it was so important that I not let them get hit by a train or a car. And then I just said, what if I just put all that fear into the book? Mm. Do you know, like something is out there to get my kid. And me and my wife are not prepared because we're exhausted worn down sometimes we don't like each other very much yeah <laughs> and now we're supposed to keep this kid alive you know and then i said and what if there but then for the change i said and then what if there really was a guy who wanted my kid hmm. and then i was just like oh shit, oh shit i gotta write this book you know uh so that was what i poured into it uh was it's just full of all my fear about not being enough to protect the kids. Shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brent, I, I want to hear from you, but uh, yes, I still think about that because he's three. Yeah. And I write about that in a lot of my stories. And, and basically um, I would relate my stories to Pixar for adults. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. I, I write about my biggest fears and that's seeing my kid get killed and, just terrible ways yeah um i'm glad i write because otherwise <laughs> i'd be in one of your 
one of your uh, <laughs> psych boards. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, Brenny, go ahead, buddy. I'm, I'm so curious about this book. Like, I, I don't even know exactly, like, how I would cat if somebody off the street asked me how to categorize it because it does so much so <laughs> I, I mean it's th there's aspects of coming of age in the opening with apollo um there's you know dark fantasy and straight up fairy tale aspects to it there's commentary on technology there's uh folklore and i'm wondering kind of how you uh, you Side sidestep to you know the answer you just gave, but I'm wondering how you originally envisioned it uh, that allowed it to branch off in so many directions, but still ultimately succeed. Well, it's kind of you to say so, right? Like uh, I will say, uh, if there's a a criticism that I I acknowledge um, is fair, even as I in every way rebuke it right, is that there's a lot going on in my books, right, that there's it, that there's horror, and then there's romance, and then there's coming of age, and then there's historical stuff, and then there's some political stuff, and, you know, uh, and for me, I, I feel like that's either, either that works for you, or it doesn't, and I respect for the folks, it doesn't, I respect, like, okay, uh, it's too many things put together, and and you you never really felt like you connected. I get it. That's fine. Um, but for me, I feel like a book is like a person, and a person is not one thing. You know, mm. uh, like uh, or at least the people, excuse me, the people that I like, the people that I have become tight with or whatever. There's there's six or seven or ten different people depending on the day you meet them or the hour that you meet them. You know, uh, and and those are absolutely the people I love the most. And so to me, the book is basic, is it, it, like, in fact, uh, uh, my relationship with books is often much deeper and longer than it is with most human beings. And so the idea that a book would be less complex than people, I can't fathom it. I need something that each time I come back to it, I go, oh, there's also a science fiction aspect in this. Or, oh, that's, there's a weird like wordplay thing this author was doing, I didn't even pick up on. Like I need that very much. It's especially maybe because I feel like I want to read books more than once and a book that only does one thing, I'll never read more than once, you know? True. Um, so that's um, like my philosophy or my, whether it's philosophy or not, like my natural instinct to, to put many different things into the book or many different genres into the book. And then I will say I've had the same editor for almost must be like 17, 18 years now. Uh, and to his credit, what he's good about is like, there's 12 genres in this book. Let's make it seven. And I go, how about nine? And he'll go eight. And I say, all right, we're capping it at eight. You know, and then that's and then part of really like part of the editing work, the back and forth that he and I do is to sort of say that whole fantasy aspect, like there's fairy tale, fairy tale stuff in uh, the Changeling, but there was a time when there was a he like would they, like there was a neighborhood he was going to walk into that was literally a fairy tale neighborhood where 
halflings and elves are living in Elmhurst, Queens kind of thing. And it was kind of funny, I guess, you know, a little bit. But the the my editor said, like, you can't just visit that neighborhood and then be like, OK, bye, elves. You know what I mean? Like there's some things that once they're in the world, they're in the world. Um, and so I said, OK, we're going to take out the visit to to that part. But we are going to keep this sort of magical feel of these New York places like the island, of, uh, like um, North Brother Island and places like that. And he said, that's great. We can just do that because it's on this island. We can almost explain it as like things don't work quite the normal way here. And, you know, and in fact, if you're there, you, I do think there's a good argument. Like you said, did anything magical actually happen there? Or was it just that the place was so peculiar that it feels magical, at least up until buildings start exploding and trees start being thrown. Then things are getting real. Um, so yeah, so that that was the process for the book, and it really was about I crammed in everything, and then I tr the uh, reader, the editor I trusted, could also help me to say, um, but we don't want this to become a chaotic mess. It should be like an exciting, maybe exciting chaos, but not a mess. I liked um that's a great explanation. I liked how uh it was pretty much a love letter to books and yes. the that that like big treasured book. I won't I'm not gonna spoil it, but that was really neat because um I didn't fact check it, but I'm I'm guessing that that's she's really best friends with him. I'll just put it that way. Um Yes. She was I, I they grew up I together. I didn't know that. I thought that was yes. really cool. Yes. And um the other thing is you have a way of writing. I think you did this on purpose and tell me if you didn't, but you have a way of leading your magician. Well, that's what some writers are with words, uh, specifically when he's in that neighborhood and the cops come. Mm -hmm. And this is a black guy. Mm -hmm. I thought that they were, I honestly thought you were going to write him getting beat. And yes, then they're kind of nice, but like dicks. And right. Right. They're like, <laughs> they're like, we're not racist, but we're going to hurt you if you're here again. So like, I, yeah. I think they were, but um, the way that you misled it in a way I thought was really interesting because you present that there is a threat. It's a real threat, but it's not what you see on the news. And I thought right. that was cool. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, um, I mean, there was certainly a draft. There's got to be at least one draft where they're more overtly harassing, if not like it was never that they shot him or anything like that, because I didn't need him to finish the book. But um, uh, <laughs> unless I didn't add it in, he's a ghost on a journey. Right? I could have added in that genre, too, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in a way, like when I wrote it where they were like, like, what are you doing in this neighborhood? You don't belong it just felt like it is the is this a 50s uh movie or something like that you know it just felt too expected like okay this is and so then i thought like well what might it really be and it, i felt like oh it might be more of the like um what is that the the iron was it like a, a a velvet glove over an iron fist i don't i forget there's a there's sounds no, right a comic that has a title sort of that I'm just blanking on right now, but just that idea that they would, they would actually be <clears throat> like 
helpfully uh like they they would give him one chance to be like look we don't want to see you here again here's a metro card vamos you know what i mean but if you're here again it's going to go bad mm. right like that to me felt like a more interesting and exciting absolutely uh encounter because i did think like well i'm surprised by this i hope i think the reader will be surprised by how this goes and then when he doesn't leave and he sneaks back then you're also like all oh, those fucking cops better not show up his oh, jaws yeah that's right you that's know right. that the shark's here and he'll <laughs> fuck you up yeah well and then the i felt like maybe on a writer level then the fun was then you think oh good he got into the house and then you're like no 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 the house is worse the things inside the house are worse than the cops and that even that might be an interesting like fun surprise you know yeah you keep him constantly on his toes there's a pressure on the outside and then like you said there's a pressure on the inside but the inside is uh man you just the i'm just gonna say one more thing then brennan uh i know that we're gonna go to a new subject but the door and the old man what you did with those two things man (laughs) I'm just like I'm taking mental notes as a writer. I'm like, that's fucking cool. Again, oh, like, thanks. Yeah, I I love Tom Savini and his uh, Night of the Living Dead, and he said because I mean he's a master at the um, you know at the uh, visual effects, and yeah. he said what you do is you make him look at the left hand, but over here in the right hand is when you are moving shit, so it looks like magic. That's what you did, and I thought it was wonderful. I, I don't think I've ever compared a writer to a, a magician before, have I? <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, you know, what that makes me think of is the I, I can't remember when I was watching it, but when watching, it must have been Carpenter because I don't think Rob Bottin was uh, in the in the in the DVD extras kind of thing. But they were talking about in the thing, the blood test. Uh, moment and how there too they were doing the thing where they would cut to the blood test and then they would cut to the guys who were tied down so that you would be looking at the guys who were tied down not the blood test and then you do it once and then the guys and then twice and then the guys and the third time you don't see um, McCready's hand the same way because now they've cut it because it's it's a, it's going to be an effect where the blood jumps out when he touches it. But because you've been, you're so thinking it's the guys on the chair, they're going to be the problem. You don't register that it's clearly like an artificial hand. And then when he touches it and it goes, you go, Oh no, that was the, that was the thing, you know? And, and then, you, and then to the greatness of the movie, they say, Oh no. And also one of the guys on the, on the, Strap down, he's also a thing. And you just go, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. That's awesome. Yeah, you you present a pattern that seems relatable or understandable, and you're like, nope. <laughs> We're taking no, a left turn. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Brennan, <laughs> your turn, buddy. Uh, so I mean, we have to talk about how this phenomenal book is now going to be a, a series. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, um, so the uh, show is coming to Apple TV. I my hope is this fall, fall twenty twenty three. Um, the lead in the show is an actor named Lakeith Stanfield, who people might might know from Atlanta. Um, sorry to bother you. A number of other great things. 
Uh, he's playing Apollo. He's amazing. And um, the rest of the cast, the woman who plays Emma, uh, a Canadian actress named Clark Bacco is astounding. Uh, Adina Turner, um, Malcolm Barrett. We get like just an astounding cast of folks to fill out, uh, to, to play Lillian, the mom, to play Patrice, the best friend, um, to play uh, Kim, the sister. Um, and there's a great, I'm not even going to spoil, there's a great William Wheeler, like, great uh and the the joy for me was that so this show was adapted by a writer named kelly marcel um who's done a few things in film she did a movie called saving mr banks uh with tom hanks about uh, the making of um uh what's the name of that one uh mary poppins right mary poppins thank you yeah, yeah. um and then she wrote all the venom movies mm. Uh, and so she's got range, you know, yeah, and, so. uh, and, um, and she, uh, so this was her first, uh, sort of desire to jump into, into TV, uh, format and like really right from the beginning, she said, I want you to be involved in this. I want you to, um, I don't want to just have us option the book and then you disappear. I really want you to be a part of this whole thing. And so, and she lived it. I mean, she she lived true to her word. She made sure, uh, like, uh, that the deal would only go through if I was an executive producer on the show. And then what that meant was um, I was on set. We shot in New York for five weeks, and I was on set just about every day. And then we shot for three months in Toronto, and me and my family moved to Toronto, and I was on set every day. Wow. Uh, and it was amazing. And she knew, like, I wanted to get into TV. So she said, like, this is your way in. And then also she wrote all the episodes. So um, the only other person who could be on set to sort of answer questions, talk things through was me. Um, the, the only person who she felt knew the story, you know, as well as she did. Um, and so I also had the great experience. Like sometimes she was not on set that day. And then I got to be the person who was talking to the director or the actor or uh, answering questions for the prop people or whatever. It was amazing. Amazing. That's, and, um, that's yeah. a once in a lifetime. Up. Well, it doesn't sound like once, but like. <laughs> it was a, that's an amazing, amazing, amazing opportunity. And it really is like, wow. I have to say, uh, I, I, I got so lucky with Kelly um, because I, I mean, I've got f plenty of friends, writers who are, who have had, or some friends at least who've had things turned into movies or shows and with almost without fail, the way that works is like, here's some money, shut the hell up. Yeah. Right. And it's still amazing. Here's some money is sure. always a sentence a writer can, is happy to hear. <laughs> right. Uh, especially as like for a thing you already wrote, that's passive income. That's the best income. Right. Uh, you don't have to do anything. Just take the money. Uh, even if it's a hundred bucks, mm. take it and mm. you don't have to do anything else. Um, but so when she made that commitment and then stuck to that commitment, um, like uh, I, it, it really was life changing because that me being in that role has helped me to justify requesting roles in stuff that is ongoing now. Yeah. That's really inspiring because um, 
I don't have a whole lot of friends in that realm, but from the people I've talked to, film and TV people are a lot different than book people. And I'm not trying to talk shit and, and start ruining my own career in the future. <laughs> but um, I mean, like, I'll just quote Paul Tremblay. He said this on Brian Keene's show, so I'm not saying anything that's a secret. But he said that uh, grown adults um, in that realm, in that industry have a common practice of just ghosting people and brian yeah. jumped in saying that's true and that's been my experience too and yeah i'm not gonna say who but there's been some big movie people that were supposed to be on the show and just disappeared it was set and i send up a follow-up email and i'm like hey if you know we're on the same page i just want to know if you're interested if not it's fine and just nothing and and uh hearing that someone actually respects the writer um and i think it helps that she's a writer yes it does absolutely help i mean that, yes this is your baby okay about a baby uh-huh. <laughs> and and it's fucking awesome and inspiring to know that if you push through maybe eventually you'll get someone like kelly and um she's the fact that she said i know you want to get into tv here's your way and like that's man that makes me feel so happy for you Thank you. Thank you. She, I mean, I really honestly, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't, I I really can't heap enough praise on her for being willing. Cause it also meant more work for her. She's got to loop me into stuff. She's got to make sure to tell everybody you have to talk to Victor too. Uh, right. Like, which is unusual and adds mm. steps for everyone. You have to find a way to make sure he's on the zoom call to talk about the troll designs or the, Building, oh, I'm excited to see, yeah, that. yeah. The oh troll, my god, you, the troll, the, the direction it's going in is, is is amazing. It, like, I mean, like, is it's going to be like surprising, weird, just like and frightening while still you go, like, yeah, that's a troll, but this is its own new thing, its own new version. Brandon, I'll shut the fuck up after I say this, but I gotta ask Victor. So, like, I went to see Megan, the movie Megan, mm. with my friend. Two days ago. I love the movie, though. It was totally different than what I thought it would be. But I bring it up because I'm like, Tracy, see that? See that poster right there? Knock of the knock of the door. I'm like, I kind of know that guy that wrote it up. (laughs) His name should be on that poster. It should be on that poster. I know the guy that created that. And that feels fucking cool. And like, it's not even like I'm going out and posting on Facebook. But like in my mind, it's really cool because this is all I've ever wanted to do. Yeah, and and selfishly, it gives me hope that maybe I could be like that, like guys like you and Paul and and uh, you know Jonathan Mayberry. You guys are a beacon of hope, seriously. Because before Twitter and I got involved with all this, um, I didn't know anyone that liked horror, like mm. really liked horror. Never mind, like my dad reads all the time, but not like he used to read Stephen King when he was a young man, so yeah. in the seventies. But he's not super into him for the most part. But like. I would write no matter what, even if Twitter wasn't a thing and I didn't know all these people, but um, to actually see that's real, I know it's not a pipe dream and and it's just, I know that other people feel that way. So yeah. um, I'm going to feel very excited for multiple reasons to watch your show, man. I can't wait. Brennan, take us away, sir. And I'm going to have to subscribe to Apple Plus now because I don't have... I, say, yeah. <laughs> I do think <laughs> like when, the, monster. <laughs> when it went that direction... Uh, like I was thrilled when Apple uh, picked it up, like thrilled because I knew they were going to do a, like they were going to 
uh, say, uh, they were going to give it the resources that needed to be good, and they have. Um, but yeah, there was also sort of like, all right, I hope everybody's uh, subscribing. And then I did appreciate, like, after we sold it, they started doing that thing where, like, Nick, whenever you buy a new Apple product, you get like a year of Apple TV. I said, oh, thank you. Yeah, please, please, let's keep <laughs> this going because uh, I want people to watch. And then the nice thing is certainly barring our show uh stuff like severance and um oh ted lasso uh i am happy seeing them like really hitting their group and although i liked i mean they had a show a little while back called c that i really enjoyed i thought it was wonderful uh starring jason momoa um it's about like a a a post-apocalyptic ish world where no one is sighted uh or like yes everyone lacks sight and jason momoa is like the like a big, as he always is, is like a big charismatic badass in that world. And then these two kids are born who are sighted. And, you know, it, it, it's, it creates great chaos and turmoil uh, to the, to the power system, to the uh, systems that exist, the power that power systems or the, the orders of things that exist. And so then he has to protect them and so on and so forth. And so they've been, doing some wonderful stuff. And I feel like they're just continuing to really, you know, make a play for like, we're a channel you you're, you want to turn to, you want to come back to. Mm. Um, Severance is, I forgot that was on Apple. I yeah, I that's an Apple that. show. Yeah. So um, I, I'll, Brendan, ask uh, one more question from I, Candace. I, I, I do want to, Candace Nola was uh, kind enough to pepper our Twitter with questions. I oh, do nice. want to pick one of hers. Thank you, um, Candace. She wants to know what legacy does Victor wish to be most known for and what advice would he give to new and upcoming authors of color? Well, I would say, um, let me take the first, the second question first. Uh, The thing I would say to writers of color, is that what she said to writers of color is looking at the broad scale of literature in general, horror in particular, there's no better time to be telling your stories uh, in part because there are more ways for you to reach people than there ever were before. Right. Like uh, it's, I, I don't believe it's that there are more very diverse horror writers now than there used to be. I just think that, what used to be was that there was a handful of magazines, mm. a couple of publishers um, who had their own preferences. And those preferences clearly didn't expand far beyond their, maybe I would say primary social circle kind of thing. Like who are the people they're meeting at conventions? Who are the people, you know, like uh, when you would find out, at least I found this like uh, both in literary fiction and then horror fiction, when I would look back on the seventies, eighties, nineties, and you would say, Oh, those guys were drinking buddies since way back. You go, oh, right. Okay, that's how that... But then, of course, that's how people get jobs at the post office, too. Your uncle or your aunt gets you in at the post office. Your cousin gets you in at the fire department. Uh, Like, unfortunately, uh, that kind of sort of like... uh, What is it? Um, That kind of like unofficial networking is a part of every uh, profession that almost every profession that there is, Mm. right? Like, uh, so that's just, it's not unique to writing. But what I'm so, uh, 
amazed by. You know, I know like the internet age and uh, online life is is called uh, uh, a scourge and is destroying us and all this sort of stuff. But I also do think about those forums where people met each other in the 90s and the early 2000s and shared work. And not just in horror. I'm thinking about fantasy. I'm thinking about romance. I'm thinking about mystery folks. Um, whatever people may think of, I don't know, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, that, beca- that began on a... Uh, of like a fan fiction form for twilight right and then if i could say like because my books are published by random house what i whatever people may think of those books when they published when random house published those books those books were so profitable that the year that the first one came out random house gave every employee a five thousand dollar bonus check because they just had to bring down their tax uh ceiling like <laughs> the male the male guy like all the male guys five thousand dollars wait year. wait i i'm sorry to interrupt but i have to ask this is before they merged with penguin right yes oh my god like that's oh. how much that book made uh for them and my point there is only to say and 10 years before that el james it was el james i think right yeah uh yeah. i think that's her name she would never have found a publisher who was willing to 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 buy that book, mm. right? And uh, I mean, I think even Stephanie Myers, you might say the same. Uh, um, like just that idea that these these new ways of reaching a larger public who are somewhere like uh, 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 this new way of getting around the gatekeepers of various kinds of gatekeeping that the internet allows, that online life allows, strikes me as a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, speaking for every any kind of writer, I think it's a beautiful thing. And then specifically to the question that came up for writers of color, I think it's amazing that you can find your communities out there, mm. right? And then uh, and the, and the beautiful thing is, and those communities can be people who look like you and people who don't look like you, right? But you're being able to put it out there um, gives those readers a chance to make that choice, not one editor somewhere who just doesn't like books from the Southwest because they hated growing up in the Southwest and you go like, right. that's it. But in fact, yes, those kind of prejudices were easily to, to say nothing of like uh, more deeply entrenched, like uh, racial gender, all that kind of stuff, prejudices. Right. So I think number one, it's the, it really is absolutely the best time within the genre to be writing, even if it doesn't feel like that on a day-to-day basis all the time. Right, because we're all especially recently seen. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, But uh, you know, in a weird way, uh, as far as if this legacy question, I feel like a very um, down-to-earth person in a way. uh, In that, the the main legacy I I want is that uh, my wife and I can leave our kids a house that has no mortgage, uh, that we could send them to college if they want to go to college, and they don't have to pay for their tuition. Like if me and my wife could pull just that off, we would be a hundred steps ahead where my mom was for me. And that would be my legacy. Like if my writing helped me to make that possible for our kids, I'd feel like, oof, I never thought it was going to go that well. That's beautiful. Let alone people reading anything or whatever like that. Yeah. I love that answer. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Brandon, I don't want to interrupt. I have one more question, and then we're going to wrap up with... Like, nope, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. I have to ask you, man. The first time we had Jonathan Mayberry on, I had to I had to ask him about this. Yeah. Um. All right. So, man, I'm sorry. I just... I so love that. All, no, yeah. that's it. I see it. Yeah. It's just opposite uh, from... Oh, that's why. Up from Slavery is the short story. Mm-hmm. from victor it's in uh again issue number 363 weird tales um i just want to know how did he come about i know jonathan invited you but like first off we heard his side of it because i asked him all about it i nerded yeah. out with him all about it <laughs> and i i just i gotta know what your initial feeling was has it changed and um just How's it feel to be in, I think, the longest running fiction horror magazine to date? Well, as you said, like, as you say, like, uh, it was a one two punch in that, uh, Jonathan Mayberry is just writing me out of the blue, right? Here's this writer whose work I love and who I just like as a person, like, in the world. I don't know, I haven't met him personally, but I just like his energy, yes, I just like his energy and all this stuff. So Already it's, you know, it's that fun thing when like somebody who you know of and admire, just if that happened, like if they just write you, I don't know, that that does not happen regularly in my life. So it was a nice, fun thing, like to see an email from him. And then when the second part of that is we're restarting Weird Tales, would you like to be in Weird Tales? I was like, Fuck, of course. Yes. I don't even know what you're asking for, but yes. Uh, and then he said, well, maybe you have a story or something like that. And then um, I said, the only thing I'd said was I have to think about it, not out of any, like, do I want to do it or not? But like, I got to really think if I have a story, like, do I have something? Cause I would also be embarrassed if I sent over something, some garbage, you know, like uh, what do you call it? Uh, some trunk novel, trunk yeah. story yeah. kind of thing. I would like to do this right. And but then as I thought about it, like even like within a couple hours, I was like, it's weird tales. Who was published in weird tales? It was Howie. Mm-hmm. I gotta write something that's like a Howard, a Lovecraft play, you know, and I had and I also um the unbelievably positive reception to Battle Black Tom made me feel like uh there's room for this and then you had other people cassandra carr caitlin kiernan um uh um ruthanna emery's uh like all these other wonderful writers who were also doing the same thing and i matt ruff and feeling like yeah you know people this is still the energy like uh we can wrestle with this you know and people in horror are enjoying this right because you, you as as much as i might want to dissect Lovecraft and his this and this. You also want to entertain people. You want people to have fun reading a story, you know. Um, so I, but because so because of that I said okay, it's going to be a Lovecraft thing. I'm going to play with something, and then I said, well, what would it be? What should it be? And one of the things that always bothered me about um, uh, at the Mountains of Madness uh, was the sort of cast off nature of the Shoggoths, right? Like uh, the sort of just the way it was described, like they were just slaves who rose up and it was all for the bad. They ruined everything. They ruined this good system that those uh, kindly overseer aliens had. 
Uh, and they're just, all they are is brutish, thoughtless animals. And I was like, I could do something with that. Mm. I think I, I think I know that. I think I know that perspective and I know what's wrong with that perspective. Um, and then just, I was looking on my shelf. I was sort of like, Oh, but what could I, could I also bring in another writer in some way and use like almost make it a, 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 a triangle conversation. And then uh, I had, uh, I mean, it's a famous book, uh, Booker T Washington's up from slavery, which is his history of having, um, been born into slavery and become at the time, along with Frederick Douglass, one of the two biggest uh, sort of, so where Frederick Douglass uh, was the person who, who campaigned for like, um, like black independence and full freedom. Booker T. Washington was much more of a, like, just let us learn our own trades and we'll just work in our own communities. Like he was not a, uh, he did not believe in like integration. He didn't even believe, he wasn't even arguing for like, we should have the same rights as you. It was really more like, if you would just not whip us and beat us and hang us, and we could just learn trades and make our own money, that would be the highest of American ideals, mm. right? And, uh, you know, with time, I think, um, there are fair criticisms of that perspective, right? Frederick Douglass was like, we should be able to do whatever we want to do. That's the American dream. Um, but Booker T. Washington uh, was born a slave. Like he he still had a, a very valid perspective. And also I just loved the the title, Up From Slavery for him and how that ties to the Shoggoths uh, kind of thing. And it just all started to sort of blend together. And quite frankly, and, and around that time, I mean, this is no surprise, maybe um, my father died in 20, or earlier than that, 20, my father died in 2012. We had a very estranged relationship. We had no relationship is what we had. Um, and then when he died, and then my brother died, I had to go up to Syracuse and I had to clean their home. I had to empty it all out and and so this was also, I said, like, I'm just also going to process all that in this story. Uh, and so that was all the stuff that went into it. And so I didn't know if Jonathan would say this is, again, this is too many genres. This is family story. This is horror story. This is Lovecraft essays. This is slavery story. This is also a story about a copy editor for some reason. <laughs> like, all this yeah. stuff, you know, uh, like, why is all this in there? But he didn't say that. He said, I think this is great. Let's run it, you know. It's my favorite story in there, and there's, I mean, there's, there's not some a, great stuff in there. Yeah, there's no fluff. Um, yes, I you know appreciate what? that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wish I pulled this up in time, but who is it? Oh, uh, how it should have no. Amelia Delia Lee by Tori Eldridge is a poem, um, and it's at the end of the magazine. But it's I'm only mentioning that it's really. <laughs> it's fun that's my favorite poem in there um it's worth every penny uh i'm really happy that where it feels is back and um jonathan's just a delight so mm -hmm. we're gonna wrap this up and do uh where can people follow you uh well the only place i'm on twitter i don't i haven't 
I don't tweet that much anymore. I have to admit, unfortunately, not a bad um, thing, man. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's not like uh, I will say I look at Twitter sometimes, but I tweet less and less because I just feel like I just don't have the I, like I'm too tired, like I'm a little overworked. I don't have the zingers. I don't have the funny observations. I don't, and so then it's just sort of like, all right. Here's my books coming out, retweet. You know, and it starts to feel like, well, that's it. That's the only reason people hear from me. And then, you know, uh, and then I just say, I'll just be silent. And I'll just read other people's stuff and enjoy them being so smart. But I am on there. It's uh, at Victor Laval. Um, uh, and that's really, I'm not on like Instagram or anywhere else in any real way. I mean, in any way. <laughs> if you want to follow the show, uh, you can find us on Twitter. TikTok, Instagram, Deadhead Space. Um, final thoughts, sir. I'm just, uh, you know, uh, I'm grateful, so grateful to the two of you for this, like, uh, for such a smart and like wide ranging conversation. I, what, a, it's just a gift to be able, you know, like again, going back to the internet age and all the rest, like, uh, to be able to have these kind of conversations and then share them with people. What a, what a amazing uh thing to be grateful for in this in this time period that gives us so much to not be grateful for uh, and so i'm i'm just grateful to the two of you and to this for this wow. <laughs> i can die happy now <laughs> um man thank you uh bernie you're gonna go last best for last just kidding that's victor Sorry, we usually do more insults with each other a little. Bit. We're, we're <laughs> off. We're 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 both off. The game tonight. is up. Well, this was, uh, this was <laughs> we were getting into all the serious, yeah. like heart wrenching <laughs> stuff tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to thank you, and we, I mean, we only scratched the surface. So, and um, if I could say for your viewers, I apologize. It's me. Uh, like, uh, I'm. Uh, get, we're getting close to 10 o'clock and uh, life with our kids by 9.30, usually I am like laid out. So this has been like the equivalent of me having an all-nighter. Uh, <laughs> I, I can relate. And it's a lot of, it's been the most fun version of it. So it's me who's unfortunately had to ask. Oh, next next uh, time, next time, we, next time we do this, we're going to, we're going to start a lot earlier because we, we have to get you back, man. And um I was going to say thank you for coming on. It's been a delight. Uh, I love your books. I think you're an awesome person too. So I just, I, that's what I love about doing the, about the show is like, we're fans of the books and the people. That's why we have them on. And it's just uh, something that we kind of want to be like, Hey, for you that like books, this person's awesome. That's why we mostly don't cover the books. We cover like the behind the scenes on the why's sure. and whatnot. Um, all the stuff that you said today and how we brought up Rosemary's baby. I didn't think we we're going, we barely write notes anymore because of that reason. Yeah. Um, Brennan, I'm, I'm, I'm blabbering, man. Why don't you take, why don't you say your final thoughts? <laughs> uh, Victor, we're just, we're so grateful for your time and, you know, seriously, like no sweat that, you know, uh, that was such an amazing flake. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> that, that, you, you can know, say you're, it. I, I, well, I'm trying to like find a way to be like, why are you apologizing that you have to leave early? We did over an hour, you know. We told you we were going to wrap up by nine thirty, and we're still yapping your ear off at nine forty-five. Yeah, producer over so, here, right here. <laughs> no, we are very grateful for every second you gave us, and you know, I'm right there with you. I got to get up at five thirty in the morning and go teach Ooh. eight-year-olds how to play violin. So that's it. Uh, that's <laughs> that's it. it. Got to get it. Uh, um, 
So thank you so much. And I hope that people will check out oh. Lone Women. That's out <laughs> yeah. on yeah. March 28th, I believe. <laughs> March 21st. Yes, March they switched it. It's um, it, oh, It'll be March 28th. Yeah. Yeah. Lone Women. And then next week, episode 187 is oh, with you have an Erica. Very nice. Erica T. Worth. Yes, she's awesome. And then later in the month, um, we're having her. We're having her talk with Grady Hendricks, and we're probably me and Brendan nice. probably just going to listen. <laughs> that sounds like a blast. Yeah, you know what? Um, I'll just say it off here, actually, about an idea we had for you. Okay. Be intrigued, listeners. You don't know what that is for now, but you might find out. Okay, you have uh, <laughs> you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us.